Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14, is where we're going to be starting this morning. If you remember last week, Mark has just written about Jesus being out in the wilderness. He was out there for 40 days. He was fasting. He was praying. He was being tempted by the enemy. And you remember last week we learned that although humanity, when humanity was tempted in the garden, humanity did not trust God and disobeyed. But Jesus, when he was tempted, he perfectly trusted and obeyed God. And we talked about how his victory has now become our victory. And then now we arrive here at Mark 1, verse 14. So if you're there, look with me now at Mark 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, we know John the Baptist. We've talked about him some. He was the forerunner, the prophet, the messenger that was sent beforehand to prepare the way for Jesus. And John the Baptist proclaimed a message. He proclaimed a message that was calling people to repentance, to turn back to God, to turn from their sin, to turn back to God. And we saw at Jesus' baptism that it was sort of John the Baptist passing off the baton, so to speak, as John's ministry was winding down and Jesus' public ministry was about to begin. However, before Jesus went public, we saw last week that the Spirit drove him out to the wilderness where he fasted, he prayed, he relied on God's strength, and he was tempted by the enemy. And here we now see that now that John has been arrested, we're going to see Jesus' ministry start to go public. And so we see Jesus come out of the wilderness, out of doing battle with the enemy, and he's coming into Galilee, and he is proclaiming the gospel of God. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now the word gospel we speak of often here, and most of you know that it means good news. But it is a word that carries some weight with it, okay? This is not just some lighthearted, flippant good news like good news the sun is out today or good news we're having lunch right after church here, right? It's not a lighthearted, flippant word. No, when the word gospel is used, it is something that carries some weight with it. So in those times, the word gospel would be used when a messenger would be sent to proclaim or herald a military victory. So imagine, imagine yourself, put yourself in that scenario. You live in a city or you live in a kingdom and you know your king and your soldiers are out doing battle. And here comes a messenger, here comes a herald to the city and he proclaims the gospel. He proclaims the good news that your king has been victorious. Now, that's that's not a lighthearted thing. That's not a flippant thing. There's some gravity and weight to it because there has been a battle. Lives have been lost. Blood has been shed. Sacrifices have been made. But our king has been victorious, and our king's victory has saved us. And so it is good news, but it is not some flippant, lighthearted news. It is a good news that carries some weightiness or some glory with it. And so I hope you know, church, that when we talk about the gospel, we have to feel the weight of it. We have to appreciate the gravity of it. 
And so week after week, I pray that whoever is preaching, that we would always preach as messengers and as heralds, and that we, was, we would proclaim to you the gospel, the good news that God saves. And I pray that we would never proclaim it or receive it flippantly or lightheartedly or brush it off like something we've heard a million times. But my prayer is that we would feel the weightiness and the glory of it, that there has been a battle, that blood has been shed, that a sacrifice has been made, and that our king has been victorious and our king has saved us. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus comes out of the wilderness, out of doing battle with the enemy, and he proclaims the gospel, the good news that our king has come to earth to fight for us, the good news that our king saves us, the good news that our king rescues. So church, this is good news, and who better to proclaim it than the good king himself? So look at verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Well, let's talk a little bit about the kingdom of God. Now, in the Old Testament, that phrase, kingdom of God, was not something that was commonly used in the Old Testament. But we now see in the New Testament, we see it all throughout the New Testament, this phrase, kingdom of God. It is used frequently in the New Testament. Now, it's not as if those people in the Old Testament didn't have a concept of a king or God being their king. They most certainly did, okay? Just listen to this verse from Psalm 145, verse 13. It says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And so the idea of God being king is not a new concept for the people of God, but this phrase, kingdom of God, is a new phrasing that we see in the New Testament. Now, in one sense, our all-powerful, totally sovereign God has been king of all eternity past. But in another sense, when the Bible is speaking of the kingdom of God, it's speaking of a coming kingdom. It's speaking of a future kingdom that would come when the Messiah, when the Christ, when the anointed one would be revealed. And so, yes, God has eternally reigned, but God's people were looking forward to a day when God's kingdom would come to earth, when the kingdom of God would, would come. They were looking forward to a future kingdom. So hear these words from Jeremiah 23, verse 5. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So they were looking forward to this future coming kingdom and this future coming king. And so this is good news, church. This is good news because here in Mark, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The day has come. The rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning the kingdom of God has come near. Now, we don't often talk about the kingdom of God in that phrasing, so we need to try to get our minds around what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God. And in order for us to do that, I want to take the kingdom of God and I want to give you the who, what, when, where, and how of the kingdom of God, okay? So stick with me. We're going to start first with the who. Who is the king 
and who is in his kingdom? I like to start with easy questions first. Who is the king? If most of you grew up in church, you know that any answer to most questions in church, the answer is always Jesus. That's right. Okay, we're starting easy. We're going to work our way into this, okay? So who is the king? Jesus is the king. Revelation 17, 14 says, they will make war on the lamb, speaking of Jesus, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So Jesus is the king. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. Well, who are the citizens of his kingdom? Now, certainly the whole world is under his sovereignty. The whole world is under his control. But when the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God and who the citizens of that kingdom are, it is referring to those people that God has called, that God has redeemed, who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into God's kingdom. And so a verse that we're going to keep going back to over and over throughout this message is Colossians 1.13. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You see, in the end, there really are only two kingdoms. There is Jesus' kingdom, and there is the domain of darkness. Now, people might deny that fact. They might say, hey, I'm not a part of any of those kingdoms, or there's some kingdoms that aren't in those kingdoms. But ultimately, ultimately, when you get down to it, there is Jesus' kingdom, and there is the domain of darkness. Because what people might not fully understand is that all kingdoms apart from Jesus' kingdom are in the domain of darkness. But listen, People don't understand this because most kingdoms don't have on the entrance to the castle domain of darkness, right? Most of them aren't titled that way. The enemy knows that wouldn't be good for marketing purposes, okay? But no, these little kingdoms in the domain of darkness, they are usually deceptively titled, And listen, when I'm talking about these kingdoms, when I'm painting a picture in your mind of these kingdoms, I'm referring to what we bow our knee to and what we put our confidence in instead of Christ. Okay, that's what I'm describing. When I'm talking about all these kingdoms apart from Christ, what are we bowing our knee to? What are we putting our confidence in instead of Christ? And so these kingdoms that we serve instead of Christ might have titles like this. They might have titles like the kingdom of good works. The kingdom of good works. A lot of religious people are in this kingdom. They bow their knee and they put their confidence into being a good person, doing good things, being disciplined in obeying what their religious leaders instruct them to do. And these people in this kingdom, they sleep better at night knowing that they've done more good things than the people in the other kingdoms around them. Or what about this other little kingdom? What about the kingdom of materialism? These people, they bow their knee and they put their confidence in the possessions they have. Now this kingdom, it's full of hard workers, right? They work hard to accumulate more possessions. They stress about how they can accumulate more possessions. Then when they do accumulate more possessions, they stress about losing those possessions. They stress about how to keep those possessions safe. 
They work hard to achieve and get their way to the top of this kingdom. Everyone on the bottom of the kingdom looks up at people on the top and want to be them. However, ironically, people at the top of the kingdom look out and see that it was all pointless because the possessions did not give them what they thought they would. The possessions did not come through and meet their needs like they thought they would. Those possessions that they had bowed their knee to and put their confidence in, they see at the in the end, they fail them. Or what about this kingdom? What about the kingdom of physical fitness and body image? People in this kingdom serve their physical bodies. They bow their knee and put their confidence into the image they see in the mirror or the number they see on a scale. And a list of lesser kingdoms in the domain of darkness could go on and on because our hearts are endless idol factories. And in the domain of darkness, we will think of anything and everything to bow our knee to and put our confidence in instead of Christ. But at the end of the day, there really are only two kingdoms, Jesus' kingdom and the domain of darkness. And the good news about God is that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. So we have answered the who, okay? Jesus is the king. Who is the king? Jesus is the king. Who are the citizens of his kingdom? And it is his people, people he has transferred from the domain of darkness now to his kingdom. Well, let's talk about the what and the where. What and where of the kingdom of God? Like, where is it at? Is it a certain location? Is the kingdom of God in heaven? Is it in the promised land? Is it in the new heavens and new earth? Is it in America? Where is the kingdom? Well, certainly a location can be included in the kingdom of God. and all those places listed, uh, the kingdom of God has been or will be there. But when the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God, it's not primarily talking about a location. It's primarily talking about the rule and reign of God. And more specifically, the kingdom of God is referring to wherever Jesus is ruling, reigning, and redeeming. That is where the kingdom of God is, where Jesus is ruling, reigning, and redeeming. And then let's try to understand the what about the kingdom. What is this kingdom like? Because we must understand that the kingdom that Jesus is ruling, reigning, and redeeming is vastly different from any other kingdom here on earth and any other kingdom we've read about or could dream about. It's completely different. And I believe Tim Keller was the first to coin this phrase, but many others have used it as well. Speaking of Jesus' kingdom, it's been called the upside-down kingdom. The upside-down kingdom, right? The last shall be first. If you want to be the greatest, wash people's feet, right? It's the upside-down kingdom. And there's no place uh, that we even better see this than the Beatitudes. So I'm going to read a little bit from Luke 6 on some of the Beatitudes. It said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This is an upside-down kingdom. Blessed means deeply satisfied. Deeply satisfied are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when you you are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. 
Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Has there ever been a kingdom like this before? It is an upside-down kingdom. Most kingdoms deceptively tell their citizens that to be the most deeply satisfied, to be the most blessed, that they need to be the most powerful, that they need to be the most comfortable, that they need to be the most successful, that they need to have the most possessions, or that they need to have the healthiest bodies. But King Jesus... It's an upside-down kingdom. King Jesus knows all those things are temporary. And his kingdom, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And it will not crumble. Therefore, citizens of his kingdom can put off the temporary and instead find their satisfaction in their good king and in the hope of his coming kingdom. And so the what and the where of the kingdom help us understand that it's not just a certain location It is the rule and reign of Christ who is redeeming a people for his kingdom. And this is a kingdom that is vastly different from any other kingdom we've known about. Okay, well, what about the when of the kingdom? Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning the kingdom of God has come near. We then read in the Bible about the coming kingdom, the future kingdom. And then our minds start to get really confused trying to wrap our minds around this, okay? So here's the question you guys need to ask me. Is the kingdom now or is it still to come? And my answer is yes. Yes. Is the kingdom now or is it still to come? The answer is yes, okay? This is why theologians have understood the kingdom of God in terms of the already but not yet. The already but not yet, meaning God's kingdom has broken into the world, but it is not yet fully realized. It is not yet fully realized. The kingdom of God is already here, but it is not yet fully here. It has broken into the world, but it will be fully realized at the return of Christ. And we've seen by the arrival of Jesus on earth that the kingdom is already breaking through, that he's doing battle with the enemy in the wilderness. And he's ultimately going to disarm him and defeat him on the cross and through the resurrection. And then we see Jesus, he's starting his rule and reign in the hearts of his people. He starts calling a people to himself who are now going to be people that live on earth, but they live on earth as citizens of the kingdom. And these people, these followers of Jesus, we're now going to live as sojourners here on earth because our allegiance is ultimately with our good King Jesus. And then he's going to graciously allow us to participate in the proclaiming of his kingship and his kingdom. And then when Christ finally returns, his rule and reign and redemption will be fully realized And all of creation will be restored, and the new heavens and the new earth will be fully established. And so this is why life here on earth can be so frustrating at times for followers of Jesus. It is because we live in the tension of being citizens of a kingdom that is here, but it is not yet fully realized. 
And so isn't this the tension that you feel, right? Like we enjoy being forgiven of sin. That's one of the blessings of being in the kingdom of God. We are forgiven of our sins, and yet we still struggle with sin. We're still tempted with sin. We still do what we don't want to do. And so, church, there is this wrestling, this pulling, this tension in us. If you have experienced that, that is a normal thing. That is normal as citizens of a kingdom that is here but is not yet fully here yet. So, so far, we've talked about the who of the kingdom, right? Jesus is the king and his people are the citizens of it. And these people are people that have been transferred from the domain of darkness into his kingdom. We've talked about the where. We've talked about the kingdom is not specifically just a location. It is wherever Jesus is ruling, reigning, and redeeming. Specifically right now, it's in the hearts of his people, but once fully realized, it will consist of all creation in the new heavens and new earth. And we've talked about the what. We've talked about how it's an upside-down kingdom. It's unlike anything we've known before. And we've talked about the when. It's already here, but not yet fully realized. Well, now let's finish with the how, the how of the kingdom. Look back at verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We see Jesus, after proclaiming the kingdom of God, calls people to repent and believe. The gospel is confrontational. The proclamation of the kingdom of God does not leave any room for a neutral response. When someone is confronted with the fact that Jesus is king, they can't play the neutral card or the indifferent card. They either refuse and rebel his kingship, rebel against his kingship and say, no, thank you, I like the kingdom I'm living in just fine. Or when they hear the kingdom of God proclaimed, they see the beauty and the glory of this true king and they repent and believe. The kingdom of God is lovingly confrontational. So don't, don't kid yourself. You can't just respond with a, nah, I don't know, maybe he's the king, maybe he's not, I don't really care, I'm just neutral to it, right? Your complacency or your indifference to Jesus being king is in fact denying his kingship. It is rejecting him as king and it is rebelling against him. You are worshiping and placing your confidence in something or someone, and if it is not King Jesus, then it is in the realm of the domain of darkness. But then there are those that when the gospel is proclaimed, when the king beckons or calls to them, their hearts are awakened. The kingdom breaks through their hardened hearts, and they respond with repentance and faith. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to proclaim the kingdom of God. And then we are to call people to repent and believe. And so this is how citizens of Jesus' kingdom enter in. They enter in through repentance and faith. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now the word repent, you remember, means to have a change of mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. Or more simply put, it's a turning from sin. 
It's not just a half-hearted apology for your sin. No, true repentance is a gift that God gives to his citizens of the kingdom where they feel this contrition. They feel this remorse over their sin. They feel this conviction over their sin. And not just the consequences of their sin, but they feel contrition and conviction over that the fact that they have sinned against their God. They have sinned against their king. And so true repentance, it is a gift given to us from God where we are broken over our sin and we have a change of mind. We turn from it. And then Jesus says, repent. He says, repent and believe. This word believe means to place confidence in. To place confidence in. We are to place our confidence in the gospel. Now the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. And we're going to see throughout the gospel of Mark, we're going to see how that salvation was accomplished. That salvation was accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who being fully God and fully man, lived the perfect life of obedience we failed to live in order that his righteousness could be credited to us. And he died a sacrificial death on a cross in our place, paying the penalty for our sin and appeasing the wrath of God. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. And he is now ruling, reigning, and restoring all things. And this is a salvation that is applied to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is a salvation that is received by grace, not by works. There's nothing we could do to earn it or deserve it. It's all God's unmerited favor. We receive it by grace. And when we receive it, it produces in our hearts hearts that repent and believe, hearts that repent and put their faith in Christ. And it produces in us hearts that will continue to repent and believe until the kingdom is fully realized because we know that the one who is working in us will be faithful to bring it to us to a completely restored state at the return of Jesus. Believe in the gospel means put your confidence in that. Put your confidence in God. Put your confidence in a God who saves. But most of us, if we're honest, most of us, like myself, came from the kingdom of good works. And so we really, really, really want to contribute something to our salvation. I mean, I'm with you. I feel it as well. I want to contribute something to my salvation. I want to do something to earn or deserve my salvation. I love what Jonathan Edwards once said, because we did contribute something. Jonathan Edwards once said, the only thing you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So you did contribute something, okay? I'll give you that. The only thing you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. I'm going to read for us from Ephesians 2 some of what Seth read earlier. I'm going to start in verse 1 from Ephesians 2. Just hear these words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." 
Verse four, two most beautiful words in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen? But many times we are like a dinner guest that keeps showing up to Jesus' dinner party and keeps contributing really bad food that no one wants to eat. Which, side note, if your city group keeps signing you up for napkins and drinks, you probably should take a hint at some point. They don't like your cooking, okay? I'm just trying to help you out. If you keep getting automatically volunteered for utensils, just think about it, okay? But as good religious people, we keep showing up to Jesus' table with our good works, which are like filthy rags, which are like garbage to eat, because we want to contribute something, And so praise God, Jesus is like, hey, you've contributed enough, I'll take it from here, okay? So bring your sin to Jesus, but leave the saving up to him. Bring your sin to Jesus and leave the saving up to him. You contributed the sin that made his death necessary. I think we've contributed enough. Let's leave the rest up to him. Well, to summarize, how do, the, how do citizens enter into the kingdom of God? God saves them, and they enter in through repentance and faith. And now look what happens next in Mark. This is crazy. Look at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Here we see Jesus' crazy plan for introducing his kingdom into the world. This is Jesus' plan, to see his kingdom break through on earth. It's not to go to the most important place or where the most influential people are. It's not to go to the Jerusalem and find the best and the brightest and the most influential people of that time. No, it is to go to the Sea of Galilee and call fishermen to follow him. And here's probably the craziest thing about this passage, is here we see Jesus involving his people in his work. We see Jesus involving his people in his work. This is a beautiful thing. He doesn't call people into the kingdom to just sit around and do nothing. He calls people into the kingdom to participate with him and to participate in seeing his rule and reign and redemption fully realized in the world. And so this morning, we're not going to talk much about the disciples, as we will a lot in the the coming sermons. But this morning, I mainly want you to see the beauty of the gospel being proclaimed, the beauty of the kingdom of God, and then the beauty of people being called to participate in this kingdom. 
And it's interesting to notice again how this is an upside-down kingdom because this is an upside-down recruiting process. In those days, rabbis did not go out looking for disciples or students. It was actually the aspiring student that would seek out the rabbi and then would prove to the rabbi, try to prove themselves to them that they deserve to be their student. Not so with Jesus. He's like, hey, you in the fishing boat minding your own business. Let's go. Follow me. Right? He seeks us out. And praise God that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Don't treat it like the kingdom of men. You don't have to find Jesus and prove to him that you are worthy of becoming his disciple or follower. The disciples didn't find Jesus and prove to him that they would become, that they would be good at fishing for people, right? He sought them out and said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Here we see when Jesus calls, when creator calls to creation, creation is awakened to life and immediately follows after him. And we'll see God use Simon, who he's later going to name Peter. We're going to see how God uses Simon, Peter, and all the other disciples to participate in this rescue mission. His mission of rescuing people from the kingdom of darkness. And through these people he called, through the followers that he was gathering, the people he was calling to himself, Jesus was making the invisible kingdom of God visible. He was making the invisible visible. And church, we have the same privilege to follow after Jesus, to participate in the mission of extending his rule, reign, and redemption. Church, we are an outpost of this coming kingdom. We get to make the invisible visible. We have the joy of giving the world a glimpse of this kingdom to come. And so when someone walks in and sees our unity and our love for one another, they should get a glimpse of what kingdom life is going to be like. When the world sees how we handle our finances and our resources, it should testify as to where our citizenship ultimately is. When we serve others and live selflessly, it should give people a taste of Jesus' kingdom. And when we proclaim the gospel to our friends and neighbors, we are participating in our king's work in delivering people from the domain of darkness. And when we feast together and enjoy one another like we're going to do later today, this should be a shadow of the fullness of joy that will be experienced when the kingdom is fully realized. Well, in conclusion, let me ask you this morning two questions for you to contemplate today. Number one, what kingdom are you a citizen of? What kingdom are you a citizen of? And number two, how is that affecting your joy? Maybe up until this point in life, you've felt neutral or indifferent about Jesus. Let me challenge you that even your indifference is, in fact, a rejection of him. But listen, he is a good king. He is a good king, and it is an everlasting kingdom. And so let me encourage you, don't live another day or another hour a part of any other kingdom except his. So repent and believe. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. 
May today be the day that you enter into the kingdom of the good, true, and faithful King Jesus. Maybe this morning you've already responded to Jesus' call to repent and believe and follow after him, but your joy is being squelched from living in the tension of a kingdom that is already here but not yet fully realized. And if this is you this morning, let me remind you what you have been rescued from and what you have been rescued to. You were rescued from the domain of darkness. You were rescued from the kingdom of the enemy and now you are now a co-heir with Christ in his kingdom. Let me remind you of Colossians 1.13. I said we'd keep going back to it. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a famous painting called The Light of the World. It was painted by an artist named William Holman Hunt back in the, the uh, mid-1800s. And there have been other paintings since that have been similar to this. You've probably seen these paintings before. The painting is of Jesus knocking on a door. And it was based on Revelation 3 where Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And so since then, we've had all these paintings of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And I think sometimes that is the picture we have in our mind when we think about our salvation, our redemption, our deliverance. But that's probably not the most biblical painting and picture of what our salvation deliverance is all about. Revelation 3 is about having fellowship with Jesus, and it's about the church actually opening up the door to let Jesus in. And so I wholeheartedly agree with that, right? Woe to any church that is leaving Jesus at the front door, not letting him in. But I think we falsely let that painting start to, to change how we have viewed our, our, our redemption and our salvation. When thinking of your redemption and salvation, don't let that be the only picture in your mind. It's okay to have that still as a picture in your mind, but don't let that be the full picture in your mind because we have to keep all of Scripture in mind. Scriptures like Colossians 1.13 that says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so listen, there is much joy in understanding that Scripture says He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So now we need an artist to paint a Colossians 1.13 picture. If I could paint, I would, but I can't. So instead, let me paint it for you in your mind what the painting would look like, okay? This is what it should look like. Because this isn't you standing at the door of your castle and your kingdom deciding whether or not you're gonna let Jesus into your kingdom, no, actually, we were in the domain of darkness. We were in the kingdom of the enemy. We were not at the castle door. We were more like we were down in the dungeon in the shackles of our sin. The Bible says we were slaves in this kingdom. And our captor was a cruel, evil king who deceived us, lied to us, blinded us, enslaved us, oppressed us in order to keep us in this hopeless kingdom. But then King Jesus came, and the kingdom of God came near. And he did not just knock on the castle door. He took a battering ram and broke the castle door down. He defeated, disarmed, and bound the enemy king. 
He then came and found us in the dungeon, and taking the key that he alone is worthy to carry, he unlocked the shackles of our sin. He freed us from our sin. He embraces us in his arms, and he adopts us into the royal family. He makes us co-heirs with him, and now we are on our way with him to an everlasting kingdom, and on our way we have the joy and privilege of storming other castles of other kingdoms that hold our family and friends and neighbors captive, and we get to participate with Jesus in rescuing them from the domain of darkness and showing them that the true King of kings and Lord of lords is Jesus. So paint that picture and you get extra credit points next week. (laughs) Church, how can our joy be squelched when the fullness of joy in the kingdom awaits us? We are no longer slaves. We are no longer oppressed by the enemy. King Jesus has rescued us. And the kingdom has been given to us. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is where our confidence is found. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Pray with me. King Jesus, you are king. God, we thank you that you rescued us from the domain of the enemy, that you have defeated him, that you have freed us, that you have adopted us into your family, and we are now co-heirs with you. What a joy, what a, we can't even fathom the beauty and the glory of that. But God, help us enjoy. Help us enjoy and reflect on what you have done for us. God, I ask that there are those this morning that are not in your kingdom, God. I ask that you would lovingly confront them with the truth that Jesus is king. And God, if they there's anyone in here who has not bowed their knee to King Jesus, that has not put their confidence in King Jesus, God, may today be the day. May they turn from their sin. May they turn from anything they've been worshiping or putting their confidence in besides Christ. May they turn from that and trust in you alone for salvation. God, would you awaken hearts to life this morning? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.